Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, Nathan tells us about a strange project that's been running for the last couple decades, scraping the internet for every piece of data it can find and using it to build a simulated world. While Holly's going to tell us about the weird, magnificent, cryptic book known as the Voynich Manuscript. Hundreds of pages long, been around for centuries, and yet still no one has any idea what any of it means. As usual, expect some foul language, and let's get ready for another Human Exception. Okay, this is the stuff I heard about. So yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, <no>. okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, he he like booked a cabin um, in Uculet for a long weekend, and he, hi Craig, he um, booked us a reservation at this fancy ass restaurant where like you can't wear like it has a dress code. Nice. Yeah, nice, Nathan nice. and I went there. I've never, I've never been to a restaurant with a dress code before. So we we went to the one in Tofino. Oh, they just look the same, but I guess it's are they not similar? The same if it's in UK, lit. Oh, Maybe, okay. yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. Um, we're very excited. I'm very excited. Jake's very excited. Um, he was so excited awesome. he couldn't keep the secret of um where we were going for dinner. He had to show me, <laughs> and I got a little nervous. I'm a little nervous about well because they have so you can order a whole dungeon desk crab. And I was like, that sounds amazing. I would do that. <laughs> but also, I have to eat like a grown-up um, in public. So I don't think I'll be ordering the whole crab. Yeah, but like if they give you like a crab and stuff, they'll give you like tools, like proper crackers and stuff. <laughs> um. Yeah, but also I am the girl who gets peanut butter in her hair. <laughs> so I think that matches the dress code. It's fun. <clears throat> You yeah, know. there's there's nothing about no food in the hair in the dress code. It's fine. <laughs> if it's not stated. <laughs> yeah. Then. That's not like they That's can a- kick you out once awesome. you're in there. I mean, <laughs> like, hopefully like- not. Hopefully not. So yeah, so we were looking at the menu last night and getting excited and I'm going to read uh, and we're going to, oh, I bought new boots. I bought fucking extra tufts with the octopus on the inside. Nice. I'm so stoked. I've been wanting those boots for years. And so I finally was like, well, we're going beach coming because we're going to Hewlett. And so I need new boots. That's fair. Yeah, I don't have, fair. I don't have, I don't have beach going boots. So now I, uh, they're on their way. Well, That's you're going to have to take lots of pictures. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm so excited. When are you going? February. Oh, it's 13th. soon. Oh, that weekend. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So it's, it's like just before Valentine's day. So, and this will be our first trip where we're not like visiting family or going for a convention where I'm working. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Just time for y'all to be y'all. It's got a hot tub. Amazing. It's got a good view. Yes. 
I'm so stoked. I showed past. Shane. He's like, it looks like a Cialis commercial. I'm like, that's because you're jealous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, but also don't forget the Cialis. Oh, but don't forget this. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think it'll be a problem. Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. I mean, it's fun even if you don't need it. <laughs> All right, then. You want a shovel? Would you like to dig yourself out? Yeah, Nathan. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, oh my goodness! For all that Cialis that you take. <laughs> I mean, I have used it in the past because people were like, "You should try this." And oh, God, a great no, reason no. to try a drug. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Would you would you like this boner pill? Hmm. Yeah. Oh my god. Well then. Let's go back to the human exception. Um yeah, so where are we gonna start? Who wants to go first? Uh who's got shit? You and me? Kayla. You, me, and Nathan. Yep. Nice. Oh, who's not prepared with our homework today? Oh, fine. you, you are like, fine. You were sick. I was sick. You're I know. I've been so hard on myself. Care. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. We got it. Well, what, what do we? I I got a weird one. I know Kayla's got a real weird one. What's what's your level of weird, Nathan? Um, it's like Matrix levels of weird. Oh fuck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So we're on a sliding scale tonight. All right. Yeah, it's uh, uh it's a spectrum <laughs> of weird. <laughs> and I didn't even get into the conspiracy theories because the fact that this is an actual thing that exists is just weird enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I kind of feel like that with mine. Mine's actually shockingly not as long as most of my write-ups. So I don't know if you want to bookend me somewhere or. I'm good with Well, work. it makes more sense to pair you and Nathan up as you guys will have the shorter one and I've always got a stupid long one, so Okay. <laughs> Let's start with Nathan and then we'll do you and then we'll do me. Okay. Alright. So Fuck. Getting started on this is ridiculous. What a way to go. What a way to start. It's just like, ah oh, fuck. Nervous <laughs> because you just talked about shoveling Cialis. <laughs> But this is making you nervous slash uncomfortable? I'm just saying. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so, obviously, it has been... Where's my math? Um, 20... I guess it's Time been is a flat 20... circle. Time is a flat circle. It's been, what, 21 years? A little over? Uh, since 9-11. Yeah. Oh God! Is it really? Uh, mm -hmm. I Fuck! That. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. So shortly after, um, shortly after uh, nine eleven, um, Homeland Security became a thing. Yep. And among that, you know, with them 
setting up shop and uh, running, uh, I believe, at least part of it um, out of Purdue University. Someone. Yes. (laughs) Wait, hold on. Homeland Security was run out of Purdue? At least a portion or a department of it, yes. What the fuck? Yep. Uh, In between 2002, or I guess 2004, and 2007, there was this idea that had cropped up from one of the folks that had worked there. The idea being the sentient world simulation. Basically, the idea was to take, to create this algorithm, take all of the data that we know, that we have within the world, that we can scrape from all parts of the, all parts, all countries in the time and create as close to a real second world simulation Second life. Sims. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Um, it, to but be, on a global scale. <laughs> but on a global scale. So, uh, again, this was housed, it actually is still housed out of uh, Purdue, Purdue University. Um, I actually just read, a, read an article on it that is dated for... Um, the first of this year. Uh, <laughs> so when all of the um, when all of the stuff was happening in 2013 with Edward Snowden and him sort of going AWOL and disappearing and, and doing his and whistleblowing, um, eventually something had sort of come out and this is this is public knowledge. This is thing these are things that everyone if they had wanted to know, could have read up on back in 2006, 2007. And in 2007 was when they started building this database, building this simulated world and scraping all of this information from all over the world to build the simulation. So, um, a bunch of Fortune 500 companies um, obviously the Department of Defense and other government departments that were interested in sort of figuring out how people will react and people um, just generally function on a day-to-day started pouring tons and tons of money into this project because shit, you know, six years ago, five years ago, even though someone was like, hey, we should probably watch be watching out for an attack, no one did anything, and then suddenly we, you know, the U.S. was attacked. Uh, now it's an actual big threat. It's on our radar. We're not working fast enough. It's five, six years later. What the fuck are we going to do? How are we going to stop things like this? So that's when the idea of having a simulation that would continuously update itself, grab anything that was happening 
in the world news articles like like even like fashion changes and anything and everything that happened within the world it would compile so somewhere out there i mean we know where there is a dumber version of us that has our slight has a slight understanding of our uh, our day-to-day activities our you know our uh, our purchasing you know like the things that we would like to do you know how we might react in a situation that impacts our daily lives these are the things that they want to compile so that if anything were to happen again they would know how to react um, or they would be able to at least predict how we can react so these departments in turn can properly set up to quote quote help um but yeah bullshit i think someone got really sick of playing civ and risk and just wanted to up the stakes (laughs) i mean obviously yeah but (laughs) like that's upsetting because i'm sitting here i'm because i'm thinking about 9-11 like i remember 9-11 i remember vividly 9-11 and like the fallout and how things changed afterward and like this would have been like this idea of this experiment or whatever would have been a great way to like predict what would happen for like i don't know a worldwide pandemic and how we should handle that um (laughs) and i feel like that didn't happen um the <laughs> the funny thing is is like I thought about that as well. Um and the the kind of people who are interested in this data are not people who are interested in human welfare in general, right? It's like the CIA. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's the Department of Defense, and it is super rich CEOs who are like, I want to know how people, I want to know people's, like, buying instincts. I want to know their, like, what kind of shit they love to buy on their credit cards. So you guys do your thing and figure out how to control people when terrorists attack, but I'm going to use this other data to figure out how to make me more money. But also, I'm going to sell you more weapons because you're going to see that this data scares you enough to buy more weapons from me. Mm-hmm. It's a continuous circle, right? Of just their little siloed area of homeland security and how do I make more fucking money? All late stage capitalism. Yeah. So, at an in around the the model is interesting to me because data in general um the idea was is like when you're building this world you have to have masses and masses of data you're constantly loading into this thing tons of integrations ton of tons of like analytics and different models and and just sort of figuring out how you're going to ramp this thing up but eventually um and and Kayla I was talking to this uh, about this the other night with Kayla was like 
there's got to be so much data in there. But after seeing the model, once the data, once this world has built itself and it understands the data and it is sort of its cohesive thing, it doesn't need the data anymore. It just like doesn't need the foundational data anymore. It doesn't need anything from the past. So like all of these terabytes and like of data that have been uploaded and uploaded and uploaded just disappear. They can just dump them. Um, and then this world basically becomes this automation process of sucking up data and spitting out shit that it doesn't need um, as everything continues to happen. So within I think like seven or eight years seven years so started in uh, 20 uh, sorry started in 07 by Okay, sorry, six years. My math is off. Uh, by 2013, this model had basically had a decent foundation where it didn't need all of this data continually being pumped into it. No more foundational data was really needed. Um, and it had, and by then it had scraped in, I think somewhere between 60 to 75 country's worth of data and was able to make a model world out of all of that information. This is like just Dwarf Fortress on a global scale? Yeah. I just, I know, Pretty I, much. I need my sci-fi to stay in, in sci-fi. I don't need it in real life. Oh. Right? So, like, finding more information on this is is a little bit weird it's just kind of one of those things yeah it's out there whatever it's collecting all of our data oops um and it there's not like a, a whole ton of information besides the the concept of it uh there's and there's all sorts of like uh the original paper you can get a hold of the uh, the figures from from the paper that sort of examine how all of this data would flow into it and what ways people would be pulling data out to analyze, what they would be analyzing it for. Uh, it is all very much focused on the Department of Defense uh, side of things because obviously this is considered a government project. They are holding on to it it's their it's their baby it is a predictive model for the world with you know that might suffer you know bioterrorism or or whatever that they're still afraid of that might have happened between the last 21 years and now and beyond um and i guess that sort of brings me to the idea of Um, I don't remember where I was going to go with this. Uh, the idea of when the leaks started happening about, you know, what was our private information used for, mm -hmm. you know, the government's 
compiling it, using it, selling it, etc. Um, you know, the NSA, uh, the NSA leaks and these people are watching us and, and so on. I, I started to kind of get a, get a larger picture of the fact that like these things were reported on when they were starting to happen. This project specifically, when it was um, just a design concept in August of 2000, uh, 2006, uh, I could I could have just gone and looked at the paper and been like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Like that's that's an interesting concept. A year later, there were multiple. Um, there were multiple online news outlets that were like, Hey, by the way, this is a thing that's happening and you should know about it. And, you know, maybe people forgot, maybe people just weren't reading. They didn't understand the fact that you're being told right now that there is an algorithm out there that is scraping all of your data all of the time. And are you are you listening? Are you really sort of like digesting what's being said? Do you understand what's being said? Um, because when someone comes, uh, when someone leaves an organization, like in Snowden's case, and runs off with a bunch of what is considered um, classified intel. But you probably could have derived a lot of that information by just reading the news or maybe checking out what's kind of going on in your world like seven years earlier. Is it really a surprise or is it? I don't know. I don't I think this is sort of where the story itself breaks down and I I'm kind of like are we are we in a position where we should be surprised about the fact that they have all of this information on us or should we be more surprised about the fact that we just don't take advantage of the fact that all of this information is already available to us even before these things are happening <laughs> psychologically like humans are really bad at not really giving a shit about something unless it's happening to them right then yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think I think the part of it that surprises me is that idea of fear and terror was really big for at least nine or ten years after the fact. Um, yeah. It was really big and people were really on top of it. And to say that you um, you wouldn't expect this or that you know you think you think that all of this stuff is is maybe not super kosher, but on a, on the other hand, 
you know, if you think back then, you're like, okay, sure, I don't have anything to hide, have all my information. Like, you can't, you almost can't have it two ways, right? Yeah. yeah. But also, I think they, like, capitalized on the fear. Because uh, as far as, like, I can, I mean, I'm in, I, as far as I remember, that was, like, the first thing that I'd seen, like, that on top, like, I watched it happen on TV. Like, I watched the second tower get hit. And yep. I think that, like, that kind of was very frightening. And then also I think that they, there was definitely, like, they capitalized on that fear, too. And, like, reinforced it. And, like, made things, like, our world completely changed. Because, like, even just, like, flying got more complicated and scary. Like, yep. think of how long it takes for you to go flying now. Like, you have to go an hour early just to go through TSA. We didn't have TSA before, like, before 9-11. And it's just, I don't know, I feel like it was partially partially manufactured, and I think part of it was because America, you can make people do things when they're scared, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy. Yeah. And and we, we like, crank that patriotism up to 12, and um, I just, I don't know. I think they took advantage of it. Yeah, yeah like, sure. the biggest threat at that time was external. It was people outside, so let the government do whatever it needs to do to make sure that we're protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes a perfect kind of scapegoat for this kind of project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's it's harder once you've once you've basically said, Yeah, go ahead. Um it's a lot harder to say to like especially when it comes to like government agencies and, and what you're allowing them to do. I mean, they're going to do their thing anyway, but um, it's a lot harder to take back say take back your your consent after you've been like, "Yeah, do the thing. I want to be safe." Yeah. Um. There, there's almost no opting out after that, right? Um, it's the AR thing. Yeah. So like you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. So I I really wasn't sure how I was how I wanted to to end this, but like this whole thing is ugh, um just the I just the idea of you know, sure there's a there's a simulated world out there. It it does it compiles all of the information from almost everything that we do and yeah you know they're using it as a model to quote quote protect us i guess like i don't or i mean considering it's a it's a u.s based model yeah they're doing it to figure out quote quote how to protect the u.s citizens but um it feels super weird, and I just, after kind of going through it, I was like, I don't want to, like, I don't want to learn about, like, the conspiracies that people have. Oh, God, I can only imagine. Like, the first thing that comes to my mind is, they tell us that all of these versions of us are, you know, are, like, dumber, predictive model versions of us. 
someone out there is like, nope, these are real full sentient AI, and now they're trapped in the simulation, and they're basically they're just a different simulation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, the first thing I thought is like, how do we know uh, we're not the simulation? And and uh, um, yeah, do not like, do not like. No, I I I don't buy. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I feel like it's probably it's like a bad version of the YouTube algorithm. I feel, but instead <laughs> of like trying to recommend a video to you that you don't really want to watch, it just uh, figures out how to exploit you for all your money and also how do I bomb this country better? Yeah, and how do you, you know? how do I manipulate people into, you know, listening to the National Guard when we roll them in on XYZ? Right. But that's really, that is, that is really what it is, right? It's a, it's an algorithm to try and determine uh, what groups of people will do when faced with a crisis of some sort so that they can plan mitigation strategies, right? Like, how do we... It, it, that is the intent, right? It is, let us create a simulated world that is as one-to-one -one as possible, and then we're going to insert X thing here, uh, whether it's... Uh, whether there's, you know, someone drops a, a bioweapon on the East Coast and we got to figure out, we see how these people react. So now we kind of have a plan. Um, that, that was, that is the written intent. Um, how intentional, like how smart, intelligent it is, I don't know. They don't really release stuff about it, but as far as we understand, it's still going. It's been predicting shit for, and they've been using it since, I guess, 07, since they started feeding it data. <laughs> oh. You know, part of me hopes, really hopes that it's just some dude in a basement in the lab at Purdue somewhere locked away and it's just him and the computer and the computer's just constantly going would you like to play a game <laughs> it's just war games over and over again and that's as far as they could get but we all know better <laughs> yeah henry why are you leaving me again yeah. <laughs> oh. so this is this is how skynet is formed and sentience yeah, exactly idea. exactly yeah you know, it's funny, Nathan, because I, I actually was just thinking about, wow, I haven't read any Cory Doctorow in a while. And then you bring this up and I was like, maybe we should all go read Cory Doctorow again, because it's like he was pro he's probably one of the like the smartest. I know tech writer is such a bad way to put it, but he's always been kind of on the forefront of uh, data privacy and protection and has been continuously ringing that alarm bell since 9-11 and even before it. Um, um, so he's a he's got a really interesting take on um, and he's written fiction and stuff, too. But I, I think his his nonfiction is really fascinating because it does that that thing that um, I feel like people want to read Kurzweil for. But Kurzweil's too dense <laughs> and slightly off kilter. Um, on occasion, especially in his later years, and Doctor kind of keeps it grounded in a way that makes sense to quote unquote normal people, everyday, you know, 
folks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like like you said, Kayla, I don't. There's just no putting the genie back in the bottle, and we're all of a, of a very particular age group where we hit that sweet spot of don't trust people on the internet. Yeah. And yeah, pay attention to where your date is going. And now, twenty years later, and we're just like, yeah, Snapchat, whatever. I don't know what the kids are doing. What are you doing? TikTok. What can I? I'm gonna TikTok. put my whole trauma oh, no. story on there. I was just thinking too, like you know, they always say like TikTok is. Uh, like dangerous and fucking run by China or whatever. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure that the NSA is pulling just as much data. Dude, oh. what, I, what this comes down to is that like warnings and stuff are only useful if you heed them. Which, mm. You know, scientists have been saying for decades there was going to be a pandemic event, but no one gave a fuck. No. Yeah. No one yeah. did anything in preparation for it. Like, we had all this time of people talking about it when we could have been making an actual proper pandemic plan instead of the clusterfuck that happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm working for corporations like I do with data and pointing and, like, you know, hey, this is going to be a problem later. They don't deal with it. They don't care until later. Yeah. And they're like, why didn't we do anything about this? I was like, because you didn't want to, because <laughs> it wasn't a problem at the time. So that's. Oh. I'm sure it, it could be really useful if we actually use what it said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh. Well, that's upsetting. <laughs> Just on, <laughs> like a really big level, it's upsetting. I oh, told you. <laughs> ate it. Probably good that we let Nathan go first. Then. <laughs> probably. Probably. Ours are here. just like, hey, weird, but yeah. Oof. Hey. All right, Hallie. Tell us about a book. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so I have been having a blast over the last three months since around like Thanksgiving or so, at least, well, our Thanksgiving, so end of November, um, uh, doing research for this novel that I'm getting ready to write. And I was looking at just all kinds of things, trying to figure out exactly where I needed information on things like table tilting in the Victorian era and seances and the occult and New York at the turn of the 20th century and all this stuff. And I was reading this book called The Madman's Library, The Strangest Books, Manuscripts, and Other Literary Curiosities from History. It was published a couple of years ago. um, And I ran across this thing that I've never heard of and I got really excited because it's a weird ass book (laughs) that no one's really sure what it says even now. And so I thought we would talk about this thing. It's called the Voynich Manuscript. Um, I'm so happy you're doing this. (laughs) I love this weird, weird thing (laughs) so much. So first of all, I will give you all the link so you can look at this. This is uh, housed, currently housed at Yale University. It is a manuscript that's roughly 225 pages long. Apparently there are some pages missing, which we will talk about. Um, And the entire thing is digitized. So you can take a peek-see at it. Here we go. Uh, And I will open it as well because I think it is just really cool to flip through it and it's it's really cool so 
digging into this was a fucking trip, which is always, I feel like it's one of my requirements of anything that I look <laughs> at now <laughs> for the podcast. Like, what is going to make me go, the fuck? Uh, several times. Um, so uh, when I was reading The Madman's Library, it's by Edward Brooke Hitching. He describes the Voynich manuscript as, quote, the most famous cryptic manuscript of the medieval period that has been the obsessive focus of study around the world. And as of yet, none of the professional and amateur cryptographers, including American and British codebreakers of both World War I and World War II, have been able to crack it. Uh... That's incredible. This thing is roughly 600 years old, and we still haven't figured it out. Um, it's it's just this absorbing idea. Who doesn't love a mystery? It's like the ultimate codex. This isn't national treasure where it's like written on the back of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> this is like some really far out weird ass shit. And if you flip through it, you can see like it. It. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so oh, like a lot of these. These drawings are like plants. They're not real. They're not, not real a... plants. No. Are you sure? They, okay, they also look like a seven-year-old drew them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this for sure. It's, uh, it's kind of wild. Um, I don't even, I'll be honest with you, there are, are a lot of experts who don't think this thing can be cracked. People have been running at it for hundreds of years um it could even be a very medieval version of trolling for all we know at this That's point it's, it kind Some of medieval has... guys like laughing as a ghost right now this is yes. just someone's personal shorthand they just like... got real high and I, got, I was yep that was my thought that's actually one of the theories is that someone was basically tripping <laughs> oh the drawing of these pants might have been yeah <laughs> Um, so I'll give you a couple of close-up photos of this bad boy, and they're available, you know, on the Yale website and a bunch of other places. But it it is really cool to actually be able to flip through it and be like, what the heck is going on? So here's a couple of um not recolored, but just like smoothed out pages so you can get a better idea of what it would look like. Restored, obviously they're not going to do anything that would damage. The manuscript, uh, it has several uh, pages that fold out like this. So you can kind of yeah. see how it folds out like a map. Yep. And then, so it's either, it's kind of like, it's broken it into sections. There's like plants, there's indecipherable codes. There's a lot of naked ladies. Oh, look at that. Hell yeah, we, love, we love oh, naked yeah. ladies. Hey, swimming around in vats of God knows Green. what. <laughs> yeah it's just it's just green tea guys it's Get just green soul. it's <laughs> yep <laughs> so what eventually became known as the voynich manuscript was actually found in 1912 by a polish rare book dealer named wilfred voynich um the backstory to this is he was digging around looking for rare lost manuscripts at this place called the Villa Mandragone in Italy. It's now, that that building is now the Congress and Event Center for Tor Vergata University. And I apologize to my Italian friends. Please don't axe murder me over that total bad pronunciation. I'm sure days will come after my ass. Um, but um, 
so he actually got these uh this manuscript and a bunch of other ones from the jesuit jesuits who were running the facility at the time they in were in badly need of money so they started discreetly selling off some of its holdings <laughs> and this wow. happened to be one of the things that they sold yeah um, like we don't fucking know what this is here you can have it <laughs> basically yeah like here's some scribbles give us some money for it here you go have fun <laughs> um and Voynich knew he had something strange immediately. As soon as you look at it, you're like, the hell is this thing? The language is indecipherable. The illustrations range from, as we were looking at, the botanical. There's some anatomical in here. There's some that are super artistic and others that are, uh, like, halfway lewd. Um, the words have been poured over. Words. Uh, the language, I guess you could say, has been poured over for centuries. Um, the language has makings of what we would consider to be a complete natural language. And it also looks like a cipher. And some of the letter shapes also look like shorthand. So it's just all mashed together uh, all at once, which is so bizarre. Juxtaposition yeah. between like, how neat and nice the writing looks and then like mm -hmm. the, the child scribbles at the bottom. The scribbles are, yeah. And like the weird ass plants and stuff, just looking at it, you're like, what the heck is going on here? I really encourage anyone who's listening to this, like, Go and look at it on the uh, Yale's library, Yale Library's website. We'll have the link, but it's it's really weird to look at. Um, and here's some I will give you all. These are from Wikipedia. These are some close-ups of the language, just so you can kind of get a better idea. There's all these weird pipes, and then these ladies bathing in liquid from the pipes. Okay. I don't know. Also, uh -huh. it looks like they're all holding hands. Kind of, yeah. Or have hands up bums? Who knows? Uh, hey, you know. Whatever Maybe the game was hold the bum. I don't know. Yeah, like, here's a, here's a close-up of a castle scribble that legit looks like an eight-year-old did it. <laughs> it's very weird. So, um, codebreakers and researchers have claimed <laughs> lots of things about what they think the language is. So we'll run down a couple of these, because there was literally like a page and a half of some of the theories around what this was. So we have 7th century Welsh Old Cornish, an early iteration of a German language or what would become German, the Manchu language of the Qing Dynasty of China, which was from 1636 to 1911, which is a little bit earlier, or I should say newer than when they think the manuscript is dated to. So that doesn't really work. Um, some folks have said that this is actually a strange form of Hebrew that was then enciphered by a man named Roger Bacon, who was hey. at the time, dis dis uh, Roger Bacon, I knew it. I knew you were going to have Roger Bacon in there. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> what a weirdo, um, <laughs> like a polymath, just very odd person. Um, and some people think that he was actually describing alien technology of the future for generating DNA with sound. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> we might I just know. heard that one. Just no. <laughs> so, so I won't, I won't wreck your shop, Kayla, on Roger Bacon. Um, but he lived Don't in England. Don't get into him a whole bunch. So. Oh, okay. So I just had a little bit of like when he lived. 
Um, he lived in England in the early 13th century. He was a Franciscan friar and an English professor, which I'm sure that was a trip. Um, and even a, a few hundred years after his death, he was considered to be a wizard. <laughs> Hell fucking yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a quote here. Bacon discovered the importance of empirical testing when the results he obtained were different from those that would have been predicted by Aristotle. Again, you know, 1200s in England, which I'm sure was super fun. Uh, and actually his linguistic work was later part of the theory of what's called universal grammar, essentially saying that if children are raised in a normal atmosphere, they develop language around certain innate rules, understanding nouns versus verbs, understanding function words from content words, et cetera, which is still kind of a prominent theory uh, in, in language development. Which is that if we're if we're not as long as we're not raised by wolves and we're around people who are speaking, we kind of just start our brains kind of glom onto it eventually. Yeah. Um, uh, so other theories on what the manuscript might be include a recipe book, which we'll talk more about later. Um, <laughs> Put six ladies in a pot. Hey, you know, that's part of it. Sure. Uh, a diary, a guide to viewing the galaxies using telescopes. From Roger Bacon, um, interestingly, not far off the mark. Uh, a nonsense stage prop made by a man named Francis Bacon, who is the father of empiricism. And my favorite theory, which Kayla is going to laugh as soon as I say this, uh, is that it's the language language of angels linked to John Dee's Book of Enoch with illustrations yes. of unknown plants, perhaps being species found in the Garden of Eden. Oh, I fucking love it. Isn't that great? Um, D was a really super weird guy. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how much you, that's how, why I got excited l last week, Kayla, when you said John D, cause I was like, oh, God, I, he's such a weirdo. Um, also a polymath. So he was a mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, teacher, occultist, alchemist, and court advisor and astrologer to Elizabeth the first. So, um, so all of those, all of those theories have floated around. Um, beyond that, what we actually understand about this mysterious stack of parchment with supposedly either indecipherable or nonsense, or hey, maybe both writings and illustrations is that we've been able to do some carbon dating on it. So yay, science. Uh, in 2009, the vellum that the parchment is made out of was radiocarbon dated to between 1404 and 1438 with 95% accuracy. So the materials the book's made out of, it's pretty good, right? I think we've, I think we nailed it. You said 1434 to 1498? 1404 to 1438. Oh. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then, but the thing is, is that there's no way to actually prove that the actual writing happened around the same time. That's just when the yeah. paper was made. That's mm. just when the vellum was made, right? Um, there have been handwriting analyses done on this and even um, chemical reports, which you can also read on the Yale site. Or I can just plop it into the chat for you. You can read this bad boy. It's actually kind of interesting. So it's the actual um, chemical analysis. But um, the handwriting is uh, smooth and unhesitating, supposedly from a right-handed person. And the style is actually so significant that it's been described as reminiscent of the Italian Quattrocento style from around 1400 to 1500. 
So if that's correct, then the writing and the vellum potentially at the same time. Potentially. Um, there's also like weird spellings in the margins that aren't quite the same that have led researchers to southwest France instead. And there's evidence that at one point, or even maybe originally, the pages were arranged in a different order, with the page and folio numbers being added later. Interesting. I know. So I was like, okay, so we don't know. Got it. <laughs> we know when the vellum was made. That's about it right now. Um, nearly every page has like some weird little bit of artwork, botanical or figurative or quasi-scientific. The inks are still vibrant. There hasn't been any major retouching of the inks done. And they come in shades of, when you look at them, you've got green and brown, yellow, blue, and red. And then the manuscript itself has been organized into what they kind of think are like six, maybe like chapters or sections that are loosely contained around the following. So we have botanical drawings of 113 unidentified plant species. So there's that one. Yep. Um, astronomical and astrological drawings, including astral charts, which were huge during this time. Um, you have radiating circles, suns, and moons, and then zodiac symbols such as the fish for Pisces, a bull for Taurus, and an archer for Sagittarius. We have all of the naked ladies emerging from the <laughs> pipes and the chimneys. We have some courtly figures fully dressed. Uh, there's a biological section with a bunch of miniature female nudes, mostly with swell, uh, swelled abdomens, immersed or wading in fluids and oddly interacting with interconnecting tubes and capsules. That's a direct quote. I kept that because it made me laugh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is how a scientist <laughs> describes what they're seeing. Like, oddly interacting. Hmm, I wonder what's happening there. Um, there's an elaborate array of nine cosmological medallions, many that are drawn across several folded folios, which is the one that I put in the chat where it was folded out. Um, they think potentially it's depicting geographical forms too, uh, like land masses. You have pharmaceutical drawings of over 100 different species of medicinal herbs and roots, along with jars or vessels in different colors. And then you just have continuous pages of text, possibly recipes, with star-like flowers marking each entry in the margins. This is as close as they can get to, like, categorizing what's in this weird thing. Wild. You can actually buy a complete replica of this. Um, it, it's kind of in one of those, like, larger hardbound coffee table style books. It's really mm. beautiful. I would like to get my hands on it at some point because it's very pretty and I want to see it. <laughs> um, cool. it would be really cool it would be one of those things where you're like hey you want to see something weird check this shit out <laughs> good party game too it's like okay guys tell me what this is yes oh my gosh there you go <laughs> um, when I was reading the chemical analysis one of the things that caught my eye was that most of the ink samples that they took uh, wound up being fairly similar in or into origin sorry to each other so they contain iron sulfur calcium potassium and carbon in these major amounts but then there are traces of copper and zinc and the chemical analysis notes that the iron gall inks which was the standard in europe between the 5th and the 19th century they were used forever and they're still used today 
Uh, They usually have all of those chemicals, like, of course, iron and calcium in them, but the copper and the zinc are kind of unusual. So then they started to do um, more testing and realized that potentially some of the inks maybe are from a different origin, but again, it's not conclusive. So I just thought, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> Yale's kind of the definitive source, of course, on uh, the Voynich manuscript at this point, because they're the ones who've been doing all of the testing. But I was reading through other articles and reports on it. Um, the It's kind of funny because it's almost like a weird curse on the book because no one knows where it's come from. No one really understands it. And there's huge gaps in, in our understanding of what this thing is, if it is anything at all. And we're not just spending all this time talking about someone going, ha ha, troll dick, and just like punking us completely. <laughs> um, the ownership history of the manuscript has a lot of gaps in it. Um, so what I could find was it bounced around a lot. This is just one understanding of it. Again, take everything with a grain of salt. Um, so. Uh, reportedly the codex belonged to Emperor Rudolf II of Germany, which would be the Holy Roman Emperor of 1576 to 1612. He purchased it for 600 gold ducats and believed it was the work of Roger Bacon, who we talked about before. Um, It's very likely that the emperor got the manuscript from astrologer John Dee. (laughs) <laughs> and he apparently owned it along with a, a big number of other Roger Bacon manuscripts because he was obsessed with Roger Bacon. Um, and then in addition, D stated that he had 630 ducats in October 1586. And his son noted that D, while in Bohemia, owned a book containing nothing but hieroglyphics, which book his father bestowed much time upon. I could not hear that he could, or I could not hear that he could make it out. So D had no freaking clue what this thing was. Um, the emperor seems to have given the manuscript to a man named Jacobus. Oh God, I'm gonna really fuck this up. <laughs> Jacobus Horkiki de Tepines. There we go. Uh, around 1622. And in exchange, based on an inscription visible only with ultraviolet light on the first folio, which lists this Jacobus's name. And you can't Weird. see it without UV light. I know! Look, how, how, how did they see it before? Is that just like the leftover ink, like it's faded or something? Like I don't know. I don't know. When the when they were doing all this testing on it, they found this name and they traced it back and were able to put some pieces together. And I was like, "The hell <laughs> is going Whoa. on?" Um. Uh, apparently, the book got around in the mid 1600s uh, and eventually landed in the lap of a man named. Oh, God. And I've looked this guy up, too. I have to do a thing on him as well. Um, and Anathias Kircher, uh, who lived from 1601 to 1680. And he apparently got his hands on it, too. And then it wound up with, uh, there's 300 years missing. Oh. So somebody's, like, fucking attic. <laughs> did it sit in the, yeah, did it sit in this, in this, um, in this building in Italy for that, like no one has any idea. Voynich got it. 
And then um, the codex was given to the uh, Benecki Library, which um, is Yale, and they purchased it from the estate of, of Voynich's widow. So you get this, you, you have a bit of tracing and then just nothing <laughs> for about two and a half centuries, and then it pops back up again. It's very weird. I was reading some interviews with some of the Yale archivists and librarians who um, oversee the manuscript. They get possibly thousands of requests every year to look at it. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> dealing with all that. Be like, can we see that weird book? No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably older than your family line. No, you can't just see it and touch it. Um, so here is a screenshot from, if it'll let me have it, come on thingy. Oh, I had a screenshot of one of the librarians looking at it. Oh, but here is, uh, Voynich. I do have that in his library. Look at that mustache and that goatee. Hell yeah. Pretty fabulous. It's pretty good. It's, it's very good. pointy. It's pretty good. Yes, it is very pointy. I don't know if that was the style in Poland. At the time, but he's got he's got some like real good, like Polish villain vibes going on. Yes, <laughs> I was gonna say like the pointy villain. beard reminds yeah. me of the devil. He kind of reminds me of Megamind a little bit. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. I yeah, I like it. I like it a mm -hmm. lot. Oh god, so um. One of the librarians was talking about how much she loves the book, but she also says, and this is a quote, she says, there's a lot of crazy in it, too. <laughs> Just like you flip through it and you go, what the heck is going on? Um, the idea that it was a hoax uh, is something that has come up a lot. And it was mostly put to rest when the book was eventually carbon dated back to the 1400s. But occasionally, you know, that that claim comes up again. And as for all of the methods to try to decrypt it, re very recently in 2018, there was a group of computing scientists from the University of Alberta who were using an algorithm to try to decode parts of it. So they ran all these tests and I'm reading like their blog and their article and it what happens just kills me because they do all this stuff and they come to this conclusion that the script was like, kind of like Hebrew. So they made this hypothesis that the manuscript was maybe created using alphagrams, which is defined, you use one phrase to define another. And then where things get murky is that they couldn't find any ancient Hebrew scholars to quote validate their findings. So they just turned to Google Translate and then they kind of <laughs> gave up. Oh, and I was like, okay. Uh, That's not how uh, academia works at all. No, I was like, I have a problem with all of that. <laughs> I don't like any, the, the article just kind of tapers off. And I was like, what the hell happened? So I found other news articles where everyone gets all excited. Like, oh, they might've decoded this thing that no one could do before. And then there's never any follow-up because the scientists were like, yeah, Google Translate didn't really give us anything. So fuck it. Just like, threw it aside, I guess. Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't find any Hebrew scholars within Canada that would want to talk to us. So we didn't bother <laughs> going anywhere else in the fucking None. world. Yeah, who <laughs> it was never even detailed where they asked. I was like, "Did you well, not?" Yeah, like, like Really? In age you couldn't find a single ancient Hebrew scholar. 
that wanted like, to you talk to you. a university. Like, even if there's not somebody on staff that is, they'll, they'll know of somebody that is. Yeah. Just, yeah, I, I was baffled by that. So anyways, fail. Um, and then there's probably my favorite person in all of this. There's this guy named Nicholas Gibbs. He's a historical researcher and a television writer. And I was like, <laughs> all right, this is going to be interesting. Uh, the story is as outlandish as you might think. So he decided that he wanted to look at this manuscript. He was going to uh, decode it. And eventually he gets around to claiming that the code is actually, quote, a series of Latin abbreviations, each character standing in for an entire word rather than existing as individual letters. And then Oof. once decoded, it's clear that the manuscri manuscript is, quote, an instruction manual for the health and well-being of the more well-to-do women in society. <laughs> okay. So the issue isn't necessarily with his um, uh, decoding a theory on what this thing actually is it has more to do with the fact that all of the characters he claims to be uh latin actually don't translate into readable latin it's just <laughs> oh, okay. gobbledygook yep he also claims that because the manuscript is missing some pages those must be the the index that would decode everything that would all would be revealed if we had these missing pages and it's just way too convenient and based on nothing but his word um, historians have been saying this dude is basically just cherry picking from the most plausible theories and mixing them together, much like maybe a television writer would write a script. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> the health manual, um, idea claim is not new. It actually has been suspected that it could potentially be that the, the drawings of the women are very specific and the recipes are very specific in a way that almost feel like it's some cunning folk or apothecary's attempt at making part of a book or maybe a whole book that is like, ah, yes, and you must do these things every day to be hygienic and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, so anyways, that's, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Um, so as of now, this is where we stand on the Voynich manuscript. It's still a great unknown. It's still a, a, a mystery to look at and go, what the heck? Uh, but I will leave you with a quote that I really loved from the Paris Review. It's an article from 2016 by Michael Lapointe called The Pleasures of Incomprehensibility. Uh, At a time when even the most mysterious artist is subject to history and biography, it's amazing to encounter a book that floats outside of all disciplines. The Voynich, man Voynich manuscript exudes an aesthetic aura while squirming out of every category. Many critics believe it is a hoax. It's probably the most persuasive theory as everything in the book conveniently falls under the umbrella of total nonsense. <laughs> While the European Middle Ages are often perceived as an austere and circumscribed culture, the Voynich manuscript was conceived by a liberated imagination. There's a genuine joy communicated through the details, like a monk doodling racy cartoons in the margins of a scholastic text. <laughs> it could very well have been composed as an elaborate lampoon of medieval knowledge, and it's amusing to imagine that we're still falling for that old trick. Excellent. I thought Love that was it. pretty fucking fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I can't, I can't write anything better than that. That's amazing. I'm going to leave it there. The idea that some monk is just like, <laughs> <laughs> doodling away makes me so happy. 
it's so fucking plausible though <laughs> it really is so yeah if if you are listening to this and you want to see the manuscript you can go to yale's library in their collections it's listed under cipher manuscript in the benecki rare book and manuscript library again we'll have the link up on the website for you but it is really cool to look at and just wonder what in the world is going on with this thing well that's awesome i'm excited very cool that's it for this week next week we're back and i will tell you all about the long history of alchemy the infamous pseudoscience pseudo magic practice that may go back to 3500 bc or even earlier as always links pictures and additional information can be found on the website at humanexception.com to keep up with all things exceptional be sure to follow us on twitter facebook or instagram at the human exception have a story you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get out of the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs> <laughs>